With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Greater Good Radio. I'm Bob Kosh, and we are broadcasting from WOR, 710 AM. We are the voice of New York. Happy New Year, everybody. I don't think I've been happier to see a year end and something new start, unless you go back to 2020, because it has just been crazy. But you know what? Just like everything else, there's rebirth. There is hope. And once again, my biggest wish for the new year is for everyone in this country to come together and prosper. Let's get along. Let's really think logically. And on that note, I don't see what is going to end up stopping us if we all kick back and really assess What's going on, what we can do about it, we will have a tremendous 2022. That said, we have a good show for you today. Uh, I'd like you to visit the website if you get a chance, www.greatergoodmediallc.com. And uh, there's, there's a number of things going on that you may want to check out. Our first guest is... Bill Baroni. Bill is a Bill was a politician on the Republican Party and a law professor. He really has a list of accomplishments that uh, is worth checking out. He represented the 14th legislative district in New Jersey and uh, was in the General Assembly. In 2010, Governor Christie named Baroni to serve as the Deputy Executive Director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. He resigned from his position at the Port Authority on December 12, 2013, which really was the initiation of the uh, Bridgegate investigation. Uh, Baroni was convicted on seven counts of conspiracy and wire fraud in relation to his involvement in the lane closure and sentenced to two years of imprisonment and 500 hours of community service. That was later reduced to 18 months. Uh, the appellate division threw out a number of the charges against him, and then the United States Supreme Court vacated the uh, uh, the charges altogether as it was an issue of statutory construction. I, I mean, quite plainly, he and Bridget Kelly never should have been charged criminally, and that's abundantly clear when you read the opinion of the United States Supreme Court. I'm just thrilled to have him on. He builds a great guy, and I'm going to let him uh, tell you what's been going on since he's been home and what he's been up to. Bill, thank you so much for being with us today. Bob, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I would love to hear 
uh, your experience? Well, I think, Bob, thanks again for having me on the show, but I think that probably everybody has heard of Bridgegate. Yeah. All over the news. Um, and I was one of the two defendants in the Bridgegate case, mm-hmm. along with Bridget Kelly. And we were convicted in November of 2016. Right. It was amazing to me that it's five years ago now. Yeah. And we went to, I was sentenced initially to 24 months in federal prison. Mm-hmm. We went to the Court of Appeals. They threw half the charges out. I was mm-hmm. resentenced to 18 months in prison. And I had to make a decision. You know, I have uh, two older parents, dad and June. Right. My stepmom. And I'm very close with them. And I realize as they're getting older, I'm going to be one of the caregivers. And my biggest fear was what if something happens to them and I'm sitting in federal prison? The fear that all of us who've gone through this experience, whether the state level or the federal level, we have. What's the effect on our families? Sure. Well, I decided I want to keep the Supreme Court appeal going. Mm-hmm. But let me go in and get this over with, because the odds of the United States Supreme Court taking any particular case are what, one in 10,000, something oh, crazy yeah. number. And I didn't want to stay out for three or four or five extra months. And then God forbid something happened to dad in June when I could have been home. So right. I made the decision to get resentenced. My sentence, as I said before, went down to 18 months. Mm-hmm. I was designated to Loretto Federal Prison Camp in Western Pennsylvania, about four hours west of my dad's house, the house I grew up in in Central New Jersey. And one of the, the best people I've ever known, a former roommate of mine, a guy named John Holub. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain people in your life that, you know, everybody should have a John Holub in their life. And he uh, picked me up at 3.30 in the morning at the house I grew up in, in the bedroom. I was in the, I slept in the bedroom I grew up in and he drove me to federal prison. And on that morning, April 9th, 2019, got out of the car and said goodbye to John. And I had talked to dad and a few others right before I went in and I pushed the button and I pushed the the button out the door at FCI Loretto. And I walked in and there's a great Irish poem by, you know, Yeats that said, all's change, change utterly. And at that moment, I walked into the custody of the United States Bureau of Prisons. Right. And everything in my life changed. And all of us who've gone through this journey realized mm-hmm. that moment. And I walk in and here I was, I was a former state senator and I had run the Port Authority. I'd been one of the people who rebuilt the World Trade Center and I'd yeah. given tours of the World Trade Center to, to, you know, the Queen of England and the President of the United States and yeah. people and, and, and sports figures and regular New York and New Jersey people. Yeah. And here I am standing wearing a, a gray jumpsuit, a gray uh, sweatsuit. But somebody told me, maybe they'll let you keep it. Yeah. Standing there in federal prison and, you know, I, it was a moment in life and I, you know, never anticipated three months later, the Supreme Court, you can't, I mean, the odds are so slim. Yeah. I never thought the Supreme Court of the United States would take the case three months later and three months and a couple of days later being released from federal prison and having John Holub come back to Loretto, Pennsylvania, <laughs> me up, drive me home to his backyard where dad and June were. Right. Yeah. And then, then in, in uh, January of 2020, right before, we were one of the last cases the Supreme Court heard in person right. in January. And then in May, uh, having a unanimous 9-0 United States Supreme Court, you know, it's not very often a Supreme Court is unanimous on a lot yeah. of things, you know, in an, a very short nine-page opinion, dismiss all the charges and say they weren't crimes. Yeah. And, and that, so that was a journey through the, through the criminal justice system. Well, as 
part of your journey. I need to share a little something with you that you might find very unique. I was in Northern State Prison at the time that your conviction came down. And I believe you're in front of Judge Wigginton, right? That's um, I had high hopes. I ran the law library in Northern State Prison. And I followed, and I'm going to call it this dog and pony show, that they put together how they prosecuted you and Bridget. And I am a certified paralegal. I'm very familiar with the sounds and signals aspect of the wire fraud statute. I know uh, the mail fraud statute. And I said to a group of other paralegals in there, I said, at some point, this is getting tossed. And when that happened, <laughs> I was watching my little 13-inch color television in my cell when this came down and I punched the top bunk and I said to my bunkie, I said, I told you. And we discussed it. And you were a friend before you were a friend. I, I like you're saying that. I appreciate I, it. I, I was rooting for you. People were rooting for you. You should put you on the jury. I, well, man, they would. We, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that alone for a minute. You know, but it's one, of the things, it's one of the things that have made me feel good about this, right? Is that, you know, when I, when I was, when the Supreme Court took the case that yeah. Friday morning, you know, one of the things that you experienced it in, in Northern State, I experienced it in Loretto, you know, when you're in prison and something good happens to one of your, fellow inmates. It happens to everybody. And there was a, there's a, the fact that people at Loretto were given hope for their own cases, some yeah. literally legal hope based on the decision of the Supreme Court. That was worth it to me. Right. And people say to me all the time, don't you regret having gone into prison? Like you could have stayed out, you know, Bridget stayed out because I mean, she's got she had four young yeah. kids. Right. Yeah. So she, she fight like heck. She's a, you know, she's a great friend. Yeah. And but, you know, I had a different set. I, I wanted I was a risk to go in because maybe the Supreme Court would take it. But I don't regret the time I spent there. And I mean this. I will take some of the people, many of the people I spent time in federal prison with over a lot of the people I ever worked in politics. with. Yeah. I mean, they're more honest in prison. Yeah. Right. And so the experience that I had there, I think a lot of people had was, you know, you know, they pled guilty. Ninety eight percent of federal cases, people plead guilty. Yeah. And they're in federal prison. And, you know, I had the opportunity. I was got to teach classes, got to teach GED yeah. um, and meet some of the most important people in my life. I yeah. met behind a locked door. The federal and, prison system has such a unique and and the variety of people in general population is just amazing. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, I have to say, and this was on my mind before we met, is that here's a guy who who was a constitutional law professor. And now you have range, Bill, with respect to I, I can appreciate what your mindset must have been pre-trial and then the real the very real thoughts that you had, like you just mentioned, the Supreme Court doesn't hear this stuff, you know, but knowing what you knew, and I have to say, because I want to add my two cents into what you just said, the hope that you must have given the people 
in there. Uh, I, you know, I don't know firsthand, but doing what I did and not having half the knowledge that you do of the law, um, I absolutely can see and people need to understand and hopefully embrace this, that because you were there for three months, that there may be people that will do better on the outside because of, like you said, just, just the fact helping somebody read, helping somebody just emotionally thinking that their wife's out there. And just what you said, too, because I lost both my parents while I was incarcerated. And so it's so I want to hear more about what what happened when the reversal came down. How did you find out? So uh, well, I, the first moment was when how did I find out about the cert being granted? Right. So because I always knew that if the cert was granted, if the Supreme Court took the case, we were going to win. Because they, they take so few cases and they take even less criminal law cases, right. right? So I knew if they took the case, we were likely to win and I was going to get bail pending appeal. Mm -hmm. And so it was over about three weeks. They kept hearing it in conference and relisting it, hearing it, relisting it. And we're like, what does that mean? And my Supreme oh. Court lawyer, a guy named Mike Levy from Sidley and Austin, sat next to me on the first day of law school. Oh, wow. And first day of law school at the University of Virginia Law School. Um, and you know, a lot of times, you, you know, the old story in law school, right? The, the Dean shows up on day one, says, look to your right, look to your left. One of you is not going to be here when we're done. Only at the university of Virginia law school is like, look to your right, look to your left. One of you is going to defend the other in the United States. Supreme. <laughs> so Mike, uh, you know, Mike and I were chatting and, you know, but he was traveling and of course there's no internet access in prison. So it's like, right. well, I had to, you know, I knew the orders came down at nine 30 on, I think it was nine 30 had to be 9.30 that Friday morning. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a very good friend in Hamilton, New Jersey, known for a long time, a woman named Sue Ferreira, who was so supportive of me and dad in June, all through the trial, all through everything. And she and I were emailing through the prison email system the night before. I said, you know, it's going to be tomorrow because the, the term's going to end tomorrow. We're going to know one way or the other. I will call you at 9.35. Exactly. So don't be on the phone. I'm going to call you at 9.35. So I go to the phone area at Loretto, which was like just like a corner and there's like a bench and about five phones and yeah. standing next to me is my very good friend Cephas. Cephas was the shot caller at Loretto. We also worked out together every morning from Philadelphia. Great guy. Um, big guy. Like to me, big dummy. I mean, he was great to work out with because he really pushed you. And uh, so there I am standing next to Cephas and I call Sue up and she's crying on the phone. And I said, What's wrong? So it's okay. I can finish the time. It's not a problem. It's always she, she, they took the case. They took the case. I said, "Oh, Sue," I said, "Sue, you're you're not a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I was a lawyer, and and they didn't take the case. But just read me what they wrote. You must be wrong." And she reads me. I'm like, "Oh my God, you're right." So I start saying, "Oh my gosh, oh my God." We went, and Cephas looks down and he goes, "Are you okay?" I was like, "Because it was all of a sudden like like." <laughs> It was real. I mean, the light you struck, the one in 10,000 happened, and it was ecstatic. And as, as, as the word started to spread throughout the camp, but they took the case, and then that I was going to get out, and that was joyful. And then, of course, we the Supreme Court argument, and then you never know when the Supreme Court's going to hand down a decision, yeah. unless it's one of the few decisions left at the end of the term. We didn't think, based on the oral argument that we all went to, uh, we just didn't think that there's going to be an end of term decision. 
Right. And, you know, every Monday and Thursday, I'd get up and sit right at this, this very desk and I'd wait for the term, wait for the Supreme Court and click and reload on the computer because it's you don't get any heads up. Right. It's not like your lawyer gets a phone call in advance. You get you like everybody else. Look at the Supreme Court and wait till they post your decision. Yeah. And it's it's surreal. Right. So here I am. I went to an amazing law school. I've taught law for 13 years at another amazing law school, Seton Hall and taught constitutional law and political law and election law and civil rights and all that. And here I am sitting at my you know, computer, clicking and reloading like the rest of the world to see if my, and it just pops up. In fact, it was Sue, the same woman who told me that uh, uh, they'd taken search. She texted me, the decision's up. And within seconds, I get the decision. And I'm like scrolling through the decision. I see Justice Kagan wrote it. There's no dissent, which made me feel good. Um, and short decision and unanimous um, and completely overturned everything. So I called, before I called Bill Sr., called my dad, I wanted to make sure I was reading it right. So I called Mike Levy and I said, am I reading this right? He said, it looks like it's a complete win. So I, I, then I got very, so I called dad up and I, I called the home and they don't answer the phone. I'm like, great, they're not here. <laughs> Get down on his cell phone, and then I got very, very emotional. I will admit, I got very emotional because it was seven or whatever it is years building sure. up to the point. Sure. And to tell my dad that we won in the Supreme Court, we won unanimously. Yeah. And of course, now my father's a big Elena Kagan fan. He's this huge Elena Kagan fan because of this one. I'm not sure he's like anything else she's ever written, but he, he loved her for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my father is suddenly a Stephen Breyer supporter. And, um, and then it, the phone calls just started, and I called Bridget. And we both got very emotional. And to have that vindication, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, other than winning a jury verdict, yeah, right, which is very hard in the federal system to actually sure. win. Sometimes you can hang the jury, but you almost never win in right. front of a federal jury. It's just stacked against the yeah. defendant. The only thing better than that is winning in the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. And I have family members over in Ireland, uh, and I spent a lot of time in Ireland, um, who read about it instantly. And for them and for a lot of other people, it was the United States Supreme Court was writing a wrong. And, you know, and I, I, look, we all make mistakes. I've said very openly that I made mistakes in this, but, sure. but have the Supreme Court's imprimatur was wonderful. And it was really important for dad because yeah. my dad lives in the same town I grew up in, as I said, and he was the guy still going to the local Dunkin' Donuts and the local yeah. Golden Dawn Diner there in Hamilton, New Jersey. Yeah. And people were looking at him. And this case was so high, as you know, so high profile. It was in the papers sure. and the TV every day, day in and day yeah. out. For him to be able to say, my kid, the Supreme Court ruled for my kid. That meant the world to me. Yeah. Meant the world to me. That, that's like, listen, that's like winning the World Series, you know, when, when you were in the minor leagues, uh, you know, just just coming up and and, and uh, it just you're saying my time at the hamilton recreational baseball association right field was anything close to the to the minor league like, you didn't see me play baseball my father shook uh, his head when i played baseball he said you should be an umpire i was like okay Pop, we, we played the same position i never really made it out of midget league right field was the best it was right next to the snack bar literally it was right next to the snack bar i used to hang out at the right field fence and talking to people in the snack yeah <laughs> i i want to ask you about coming home. Yep. Are you, do you feel a stigma? Do you feel differently, even though you have won, you know, to go 
through the whole scarlet letter for lack of a better explanation. You know, people will look at any case, a criminal case, even though you're found not guilty, it gets tossed out on appeal, whatever. People are, well, he must have done something. And it's just not the same. So tell me about coming home. Well, I'll, I'll answer you in two, in two parts. First, the literal coming home. John picking me up, driving home, getting to Hamilton, seeing Dad in June, seeing my family and my dear close friends. Um, and then the next morning, I had to go get a driver's license because the prison, in the three months I was there, lost it. Right. Oh, so, and I remember checking out of, and of course, everybody knew about the Bridgegate case. Everybody knew about the Supreme Court. This doesn't happen. You know, yeah. so even the corrections officers said that I said, I said, this is my driver's license back. He said, well, you could stay as we looked for it. I was like, no, that's okay. So the next day I had to go to, and I was, came back to New York that night where I had an apartment the night I got out and we had a little party at, at John's Holub and his wife, Cindy's house. And then I came back to the city and walked into the very same apartment I had walked out of and tried to find an old, I couldn't find it. So the next morning I had to take the train to go back to Hamilton. Dad and June were going to pick me up. And we're going to go to the driver's, the DMV, where I had to get a new driver's license. So when I'm there at the DMV, I remember being on the train, being at Penn Station, just feeling overwhelmed, like there's too many people. And I was only gone three months, never mind somebody who's been gone 20 years. And I remember going to the DMV and going up to the counter to get the new driver's license. I had to turn the documents. And the woman behind the counter, she says, you know, we've never met, but I'm from Hamilton. I voted for you. I was like, oh, thank you very much. And she said, really feel sorry what you've went gone through. I'm so glad that you got out. And, you know, people around here, they know you. They know what really happened. Yeah. We support. So she gave me the driver's license. She grabs my hands and she said, be strong, be strong. I'm getting emotional at this point. Yeah. She says to me, she said, can I come give you a hug? This woman, a DMV. And she comes out and the people are like staring. What's going on? This woman from behind the counter, she comes. I've never met her before. I may never meet her again. She was in yeah. line number nine. And she gives me this big hug, and I almost break down in tears. You know, I realized, Bob, by the way, I would not be the first person to cry at DMV. Oh, sure. sure. Especially looking for those six points of uh, verification. Right. So, you know, it told me that I could go home. Yeah. And I literally go home. And the old line, you can't go home again. That's just false. Yeah. Certainly, in, certainly in lots of parts of New Jersey, it was false. But you asked if I had a stigma. And yeah. the, the issue is is exactly what you said. There will always be people, no matter what. The Supreme Court of the United States, a jury, they will forever think, no matter what, but, you know, you must have done something. You must have been guilty of something. They don't just accuse people wrong. And the problem is, you're never going to convince people one way or the other. And there's always going to be people who put stuff on Twitter or put stuff on, you know, they're anonymous yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. Whatever. They're going to say things. You're never... But here's the problem. It's not those people who want to say nasty things about you no matter what. You know what the problem is? It's systemic. It's the fact that, that uh, men and women get out of prison, people who I was in prison with, people you were in prison with, and they can't get a bank account. Yeah. But they get out of prison, they can't get an apartment. Yeah. They get out of prison, they can't get a job. And yet we say, we should send you to prison so we can rehabilitate you, so you can come back into society and get a job and have a house and build a family. But yet you can't get a credit card. You can't right. get a bank account. You can't get a job. You can't get a break. I got lucky. Yeah. The Supreme Court took my case. I was also lucky that my case was so high profile that when I got out and people knew about the case and what happened and what did sure. happen, I was going to get a job. 
I wouldn't have been practicing law again, but I was going to get a job. Right. But lots and lots of guys I was in Loretto with, or you were in Northern State with, they come out and they have, they have no ability to get a bank yeah. account. And how do they write a check for their deposit for their rent? Yeah. They can't get a rental account. And we take people and we say, yeah, you, you got your three-year sentence, your 18-month sentence, your 20-year sentence. And you served your time. We always say that, you know, it served his time. But yet we build a system that says, you know what, we don't, we're not going to give you a job. Yeah. We're, we're not going to give you a bank account. We're not going to give you a credit card. We're not going to yeah. give you. The, I'm not saying what any of us did wasn't wrong at one right. level or another, right. right? But this system where you say to someone, you made a mistake at 21 years old and for the rest of your life, yeah. we're going to make, we're going to give you the scarlet letter. Even in the book, the scarlet letter, eventually you got rid of the scarlet letter. Sure. Here you don't do that. And, and this is the only country in the world that does it that way, that you're forever yeah. tarnished with this. I believe, and I believe it more than ever after my time in Loretto, that people make mistakes, big mistakes, yeah. mistakes that send them to prison, where the United States government or the state of New Jersey, the state of New York says, we're going to put you behind bars. We're going to take away your freedom and your liberty. We're going to lock you up. We're going to put you behind a fence in some cases. And we say to those folks, you get out of the, you get out of there. We sort of say, well, we're going to still tarnish you with that. Yeah. We're not. We're not going to. We're not going to say you're going to be rehabilitated, right? Yeah. Not a system, Bob, that works. And it's one no. of the things that I learned. Look, in the, as a legislator, and I look back on it and regret. When I was a senator, I voted for mandatory minimum sentences or to yeah. increase sentences lengths, right? Because that's what you did. You know, sure. we're not seeing any system. We're not helping people um, in 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 prison. Um, and the people who are helping people in prison are other inmates, yeah. people teaching the GED classes, people like you working in the law library, helping people with their briefs. It's people who are helping people get jobs or create businesses. You know, and one of the parts of politics that I did love, I didn't love the partisanship. I didn't love the nastiness. One of the things I did enjoy was the constituent service. I knocked on 11,000 doors when I ran for office yeah. the first time. I yeah. love that. My life has changed now. I'm never going to go back to politics, obviously. But... You know, one of the things that people like this, like your show, is so important yeah. is that there are lots of people who get out of prison yeah. who are looking for help and shows like yours and that really reach out to people and say, you know, there's a community of folks out here yeah. that will help you. And we and that we owe it to each other. Look, we owe it. We, we, we counted on each other when we were in Northern State or Loretto or anywhere else. We still do. Yeah, and that's why I'm. So, I was so glad to come on your show because it really matters. It really matters what we do for each other. Well, and I'm so so happy you're saying that. And it's it's equally as important for me to have you on because we carry this. And when I say we, it's not just me and you. It's it's the guys. I still work with. Uh, guys who are inside that can't afford a lawyer on post-conviction stuff, appellate work. But on my second show that I launched, we discussed um, sentencing for nonviolent drug offenders. And I've never heard a show or seen a show that at least focused or raised that topic. As you mentioned, this system is an abysmal failure. They're my words, they're not yours, but I, I, I spent six and a half years 
in, I got reversed 14 months after I was sentenced, then getting out was no picnic. I am fortunate and I want to carry this with individuals like you, like Jeff Grant of our white collar support group. Such an important group that he's gotten. And for any of your listeners who may not be familiar with Jeff, you know, he runs a white collar support group uh, like like Bob and I you know, spent spent time in prison. He runs this amazing group that does a series of these Zoom calls throughout the week, really helping each other, people who are have gotten out of the system, like Bob and I and Jeff, but also people who are about to go in the system, yeah. who are about to go into prison, and letting people know that there's a community out here yeah. uh, that uh, that really does, that really looks out for each other. You yeah. have to. Yeah. And in, in closing, I have to say that what I have found is just what you raised at the beginning of our interview. There's a spark in all of us. There's life. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, you know, I didn't make all the right decisions in life. And it's important, though, that even though we're sharing this experience and we're able to get it out there, it needs to get to people who will listen. You know, the, the, the phrase, I know you hear me, but are you listening? Absolutely. Absolutely right. Because you mentioned this at the beginning. Basically, it's like one out of every three people in this country either is has been in, is in, or knows a friend or a family member in the criminal justice system. Right. This is something that affects, you know, every town, every neighborhood in the country, every town, neighborhood in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and what what I think is important is that this be, shows like this become a resource for people. But what really is a resource for people is supporting people that are in and also supporting their families. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the things I've done, and, you know, I, I, with a colleague of mine, Gordon Kaplan, who spent a month in Loretto, he was part of the college admissions case. Mm-hmm. He's now out. And he and I have started a group called the Prison Visitation Fund. It's a nonprofit that helps family members, raises money to help pay for family members yeah. to go visit their loved one in the prison. Because both you and I knew people whose family members could not afford whether it was a train fare or a plane fare or a bus fare to come visit their loved one in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this is a really important way that we can help each other. And, you know, I've been amazed when I was away. I mean, there were people, there was a guy from Baltimore who I got very close with. And Baltimore is only maybe three, three-ish hours away from Loretto. His yeah. family visited him for five years, couldn't afford to visit him for five years. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things that people out there in the community can help each other with. And, and, yeah. and help because realize that, Everybody, nearly everybody that I was in Loretto with, and nearly everybody yours in Northern State with, are going to come home. Yeah. They're going to come back to the community. They're going to come yeah. back to the neighborhood. They're going to come back to their families. And one of the things that we can do for each other is really make sure that we we support each other in that. And we really, and yeah. programs like this, and I got to tell you, it's so important because you and I are lucky, right? Yeah. You and I, no matter what we went through, you and yeah. I are lucky. You know, you you built a career. You've got a real microphone with this terrific show that's heard all across the country and all around the world on on through iHeartRadio um, and podcasts and iTunes and you know so people are going to listen to this they're going to listen to it in Hamilton, New Jersey and and Hamburg, Germany, right? And um, and the, the, it's so important and I'm so grateful that the shows like this exist because we need to realize no matter what people did and there's some people did you know crimes they committed crimes we're still going to be you know we still need to support each other yeah 
And, um, and we're doing that. And, and look, the hardest thing in the world, and we started by saying this, is that moment that you and I pushed that button and walked into prison. Yeah. And that moment we put on the prison uniform and that moment we stood for count day after day and that oh, moment yeah. we waited for mail call to see the letters that would come in or the newspapers or anything. Yeah. It's the moment where somebody we knew got to go home. It's the moment where people in prison looked out for each other. Somebody lost a loved one. Yeah. They couldn't go home. You know, we are different people than we yeah. were before we pushed that button and got into prison. And, and, and we'll never unring that bell and you'll never undo that moment. No matter what the Supreme Court says, no matter what the Court of Appeals says, yeah. for your case, it's always going to be there. So we have two choices. The same two choices that everybody who's listening to this show has. We either forget it and say there's a chapter of my past that I never want to reopen. I never want to think about it again. Or what you and I and Jeff Grant and lots of other people are doing, which is say, nope, we're going to learn from it. We're going to grow from it. We're going to help other people from it. So yeah. thank you for, for doing what you're doing. You're a good man. It was my pleasure to have you on. And we will have you back. I look forward to it. Thank All you. right, man. I wanted to leave you with a couple of comments after this interview with Bill Baroni. I believe so much of this that we are putting out there is important and not so much important to say, hey, you know, the system stinks, this, that and the other thing. What we're trying to do really is have all of us become better people. If we become better people, things all around could get better. I mean, nobody's telling you, hey, uh, you know, come hug a thug. But you know what? It's important that people inside and out are treated fairly. And I wanted especially to really echo the comments uh, made by Bill and what he's doing is so important um, with the prison visitation fund. You may think if you've never been involved with the law or, or, or had anybody that you know that was locked up, and if they can keep some kind of family ties, it is just monumentally important. So I wanted to raise the website address uh, where, where Bill's involved. And um, please, if, if you see your way clear of a couple of bucks, you know, send it to prisonvisitationfund.org. Thanks a lot, everybody. You're listening to Greater Good Radio with Bob Kosh on WOR 710 AM in New York City. Starting a business or advancing your platform is no walk in the park. The challenges of today's marketplace should be navigated by those who know its ups and downs. Morgan Taylor has the skill set to provide any brand, organization, or company with guidance for growth. Morgan Taylor Marketing offers web development and creative services for business owners and entrepreneurs. You can contact Morgan at morgantaylormarketing.com or call her at 973-821-3322. The American spirit, its ingenuity, desire, Pride and the chance to achieve your dreams. Have you ever given any real thought about where we would be without the American farmer? Have you ever really asked yourself that question at the dinner table while you're eating with your family? Ben Moore had a vision when he started The Ugly Company. 
After Ben served as an infantryman in the United States Army, he returned to farming and decided to do something about the waste of perfectly good fruit deemed unmarketable due to nothing more than a blemish or its shape. Thousands of truckloads of fruit are thrown out in California every year. The Ugly Company has taken a giant step in addressing food insecurity. The Ugly Company prevents food waste by upcycling fruit and transforming it into healthy dried fruit snacks. When you order from the Ugly Company, you're getting the best that this Kingsburg, California farming company has to offer. You know, ugly never looks so pretty. Go to www.theugly.company to order online for home delivery and learn more about these healthy, delicious products. Hey everybody, I got a little bit of a throwback for you. I had the absolute privilege of becoming a friend with Ray Manzarek, a keyboard extraordinaire, a member of the, the Doors from way back when, and I did an interview with him in 2009 and wanted to bring it back for, for everybody to hear. He just was... He was a great guy. Um, his stories with the band, Jim Morrison, you know, you're going to hear it in a in a couple of seconds. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2013, but here's my interview with Ray Manzarek. I would like to introduce the gentleman who brought keyboards to their height in rock and roll. It's not only my opinion, I think it's uh, pretty much planet Earth's. He was an original member of The Doors, and he has done some amazing things in the past few years. We're talking to Ray Manzarek. Hey, Ray, how are you? We're fine, Bob. How you doing? Great. Man? How's, everything, how's everything in New Jersey? Everything is fine in Jersey and the East Coast as a whole. What's going on out in California? Uh, starting to rain. Uh, wintertime's coming. Well, I'm up in Northern California. Dorothy and I moved out of uh, Los Angeles, and we moved up to uh, wine country up in Napa. So uh, we're having a great time up here, but it's much wetter and much colder <laughs> than it is in Southern California. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You've probably been asked this a few thousand times about your relationship with The Doors and what you've gone through. Can you give us and give our listeners a little background on yourself, especially those years with Jim Morrison? Uh, let's see. I first met Jim Morrison at the UCLA Film School. We were students at UCLA, and we became friends there. We met through a mutual friend, a New Yorker, John DeBella, as a matter of fact. Oh, sure. That's how we met and became good friends, talking about film and talking about philosophy and the beat poetry, you know, right. Michael McClure and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, and uh, smoked a few dubs together <laughs> and uh, got high together, as people did, and uh, were good friends. We both graduated in the uh, late spring, early summer of 1965, and he was going off to New York City, and I thought, gee, I'm never going to see Jim again. He's going to go make underground avant-garde films, and I'm going to uh, stay here in Los Angeles and try to make, you know, the hour and a half, two-hour theatrical, cinematic Feature films, yeah. yeah. And uh, unfortunately, there was no work for anybody from the UCLA Film School at the time, because Hollywood was making uh, Doris Day, Rock Hudson, Pillow Talk yeah. movies, and they sure didn't want to know anything about any kind of existentialist European 
European philosophy films made by young guys on the West Coast of California, particularly stoners and acid heads, you know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I had no work. Right. And I was sitting on the beach in the middle of July, 1965, and uh, who came walking down the beach but James Douglas Morrison. Wow. And I said, Jim, Jim, hey, man, come on over here. What's going on? I thought you were going to New York. And he said, no, I decided to stay here. I said, well, that's cool, man. Good to see you. I missed him. You know, he was yeah. a good guy. I had a lot of fun with him and the meeting of the minds, as they say. I said, what have you been doing? And he said, I've been writing songs. And I said, no kidding, man. I knew he was a poet. I said, sing me a song. And he did. He sang Moonlight Drive. And I thought, ooh, those are cool lyrics, yeah. man. Let's swim to the moon. Let's sure. climb through the tide. Penetrate the evening that the city sleeps to hide. And I could hear all the funky keyboard stuff like Ray Charles or Jimmy Smith organ behind it. And uh, actually, I could hear all the music behind those cool words. Sure. That was it, man. I thought, this is it. That's a great song. He had a few more songs, and I said, we got to get a rock and roll band together, yeah. man. We're going to make a million dollars. He said, Ray, that's exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, come on, man. Where are you living? And he said, I'm staying with a friend, Dennis Jacobs, sleep up on the rooftop. I said, you can't sleep outside, man, down the beach in Venice. You'll get pneumonia. You're coming to live with me and Dorothy. So I brought Jim home and said, honey, it's Jim. And she said, oh, I thought you went to New York. And he said, no, I stayed here, Dorothy. And I said, we're going to get a rock and roll band together. And Dorothy looked at Jim, looked at me, looked at Jim, looked at me, and she said, yeah, I think that's going to work. Work for me. <laughs> and that was it, man. You look at The Who, you look at the other bands from back then, where do you think the doors would be today if Jim Morrison was still around and the rest of you decided to hang? Well, we'd be doing the same thing. Uh, we wouldn't be working nearly as hard as we did when we were in our 20s. I mean, after all, we're into our 60s now. So, you know, we'd uh, make an album once every couple of years, go out on a couple of tours. We'd be uh, making films, that's for sure. Uh, we were both in the film school, so we would be making films, and uh, very possibly we'd have uh, gotten involved in politics, too. I've been in contact with your production team, Scott Hamilton, Gerald Burdell, and Barney Cohen. I understand that you guys are going to be doing a remake of Love Her Madly? That's correct. Love Her Madly is a movie I made about, oh, four or five years ago. And we're going to be doing a remake of it. Yeah, we're going to do it uh, big budget, big screen. It's a dark film noir kind of thing. A story of sexual obsession and madness and murder set on a college campus. Jim Morrison had originally written this. Is that correct? No, it's Jim Morrison's idea. Oh, okay. When it was necessary, possibly for him, if he was going to go for his master's degree, to either take a test or make a film. And he thought about the film idea of three guys in love with the same girl. Basically, his girlfriend, just a knockout, stunning girl at UCLA. And the guys that would be in love with her would be a teacher, an artist, and a filmmaker. So what I've done in the movie is I've fleshed that whole thing out, and I've got a teacher who's a drama teacher, her drama teacher. He's an old reprobate, cokehead kind of secret kind of guy who is just insane with her and thinks he's going to Broadway with her as his starring leading lady. Then it's her boyfriend, who's a 
sculptor, and all he does is sculpt, photograph, and make drawings of her. He's obsessed by her. Then there's the filmmaker guy, the weird nerdy guy, who makes kind of sexual fantasy movies with her. Not doing anything with her, not having her in any porno, but he uses her in her naked, beautiful body to just create these art videos. All three of these guys are in love with her. A murder is committed at the beginning of the movie. We jump back in time, tell the story. At the end of the movie, you find out who the corpse is and who the murderer is. It's hip-hop Hitchcock. Okay, so it could be Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick. Exactly. Was it him or was it the candlestick? (laughs) Hey, Ray, tell our listeners where they can find you on the web and let's hear what you're doing in the future. Well, go to uh, raymansarek.us, USA. You can go to thedoors.com. All right, boss. Welcome to this edition of Classic Cuts, and in tribute to our old friend Ray Manzarek of The Doors, this is Strange Days.
I hope you folks enjoyed the interview that we just heard. You know, it's been a little while. I miss Ray. He, like I mentioned, you know, we got to be friends. And the talent that this man possessed was just incredible. And there are a number of other interviews I'm going to bring back. I've been on radio a number of years uh, on other stations. I have a tremendous interview with Peter Tork of the Monkees, Isai Morales, a number of other personalities that um, some are still with us, uh, some are gone. But the content is, is, is worth repeating, and I hope you enjoy it. Many survivors of sexual abuse remain silent about their trauma and suffering for years. That pain negatively affects an individual from the shame they've endured as a victim. Opening up is a key component to healing. Jeff Anderson and Associates pioneered the use of civil litigation to seek justice for survivors of child sexual abuse. Widely recognized as one of the most prolific and successful litigators of child sexual abuse cases against churches and other institutions, Jeff Anderson has handled priest, Boy Scout, school, and athletic organization abuse cases in numerous states throughout the nation. They are smart, tough, and relentless, but it's virtue and compassion that ultimately makes them uniquely qualified to represent those who seek to move forward. Some windows of time for filing claims in certain areas are closing. Contact Jeff Anderson and Associates for real-time updates in these matters. Call 1-800-IT'S-TIME or visit their website at www.andersonadvocates.com. Offices located at 55 West 39th Street, 11th floor, New York, New York, 10018. Life is full of peaks and valleys, and between the two, some of those things may have created financial setbacks. You do not have to suffer the anxiety of how to get out of a situation you didn't plan. You don't have to go it alone. The law offices of Edward Hanratty specializes in debt relief, bankruptcy protection, challenging student loans, and mortgage modifications. The law provides us with certain protection. And it's something you should take advantage of when you need it. Call 732-866-6655 or visit their website at www.centralnewjerseybankruptcylawyer.com. Experience and confidence is what the law offices of Edward Hanratty has been providing since 1997. Representation you can trust. Call them today or visit our offices at 80 Court Street, Freehold, New Jersey. Saying your final goodbyes are never easy. Your memories and the final tribute to a loved one who meant the world to you requires a guiding hand. The staff at Shook Funeral Home, located at 639 Van Houten Ave in Clifton, New Jersey, are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to assist you in your time of need, as well as answer any questions you may have regarding at-need or pre-need funeral arrangements. Call Shook at 
1-800-926-9620 or visit their website at shookfh.com. Shook Funeral Home is family owned and operated. They invite you to view and read the letters of appreciation they've received from many families they've served in their testimonials section. Remember, in your time of need, call Shook Funeral Home. You know, on this show, we totally support getting involved with community. And I wanted to remind you, you know, last week we had Mike Shorman on. Mike is the uh, unbalanced paddleboarder. Mike came back after being hit with a tragedy, suffered mental illness, and he's back up and running. Uh, if you listened last week, we were talking to him about what he's going to achieve starting August 22nd. He's actually going to cross one of the Great Lakes and go from Rochester to uh, Toronto, Ontario. It's going to take him three days on a paddleboard. I mean, you talk about drive, grit, and determination. Um, we're going to keep you posted on what's going on with this because this really is a significant physical feat for someone who's in good shape, let alone recovering from, you know, a terrible illness. We'll keep you posted and let you know how Mike makes out on his journey. We all support him, and it's just a great thing that he's doing. Hi, folks. I'm Bob Kosh from Greater Good Radio. You know, today's real estate market is like nothing we have ever seen before. That's why if you're looking for a home or a landlord looking to rent your home or a prospective tenant, someone who needs a rental, it would be a great choice to choose Bonnie O'Malley Real Estate. They're located at 1308 3rd Ave in Spring Lake, New Jersey, 07762. Bonnie has been in the real estate business for years and specializes in residential home sales and rentals. You can call Bonnie at 732-449-2424. So if you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, or need a rental, call Bonnie O'Malley. Or you can email her at bonnieomalley at verizon.net. Okay, it's time for me to get out of here. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a great week, everybody. And I just want to say, V1, Mejente, Willie, Miguel, Q, Brian, and Percy, and Black Just. All right, that's all we've got for now. I'll see you next week on Greater Good Radio. Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.